Welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. I'm Alec. My name's Aaron, and no, you have not time traveled. It's not 2018. We are alum back to say hi and to introduce this week's podcast. There's been so many generations of folks who have taken on this podcast since we passed it off, and it's been really nice to see uh, that there's still engagement and there's still the high-quality content that you came here for uh, six years ago. So great to, to be back and to celebrate that this weekend. And before we turn it over to the current flies, to interview this week's guest, we'll give her a quick intro. This week's guest is Katie Harbath, a former head of public policy at Facebook from 2011 to 2010, and now the founder and CEO of Anchor Change, an organization working at the intersection of tech, policy, and business. I can only imagine that there are a lot of questions that can uh, be asked to Katie during that time period she was at Facebook, so it can only make for a very interesting conversation and very informative, too, about how social media and politics uh, can intersect, especially as uh, we enter another election cycle in the upcoming weeks. Should be a great episode. So without further ado, the new flies. That's right. Thanks, Aaron and Alec. Great to learn from the best and to learn from our fly founders. Um, Fiona, what do you enjoy most about our conversation with Katie Harbath? I loved hearing her perspective about the role of Facebook before 2016 and then how it changed unexpectedly um, and the role it plays now with all of the upcoming elections in the U.S., in Indonesia, Brazil, all of the ones she listed. It was a great conversation. For sure. And Alec and Aragon, th- thanks for kicking us, kicking us off for this intro. One quick question. Is there something that our listeners should subscribe to before they click through the interview? Well, I'm sorry. We, ah, we dropped the ball. We should have done this right we off. Really you got to like and subscribe to at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter and Instagram, but at Fly on the Wall Podcast on a different social I, I'm on really Facebook I think on Facebook on Facebook but also subscribe to fly on the wall on Apple Podcasts, Spotify oh, and wherever Spotify else now. you get your podcasts there you go and I'm not if, too rusty if, oh this is what it was if you want to get in touch with the flies you can send us an email at fly on the wall podcast at gmail.com or get this fly on the wall at georgetown.edu no what way oh my god all right. <laughs> graduated and uh, wow things change nothing's the same well, we're, old. we're still in this room <laughs> we are all <old>. recording <laughs> podcast enjoy the episode guys All right, Katie Harbath, thank you so much for joining us here at Fly on the Wall. Very excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, great. So, um, just to start off, you know, you're one of maybe the leading minds when it comes to looking at social media and democracy and politics and the intersection there. Uh, can you just share with our listeners exactly um, your role in that? You know, you were obviously at Facebook for a while. How you got there? What exactly your position was? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a fun story that I do like to tell. So I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin originally, went to UW-Madison for undergrad, where I got a journalism and political science degree. I originally thought I was going to be a reporter. And I had met some friends at the student newspaper who were involved in politics. And that got me to D.C. in July of 2003 after graduating school. And I came to D.C. and I got a job at the Republican National Committee. Um, And as I was coming in, I was assistant communications um, staffer, answering phones mainly, you know, all doing all the kind of entry level job type stuff that, that people would expect. But as I was coming into the RNC, the guys who were running President Bush's um, e-campaign, as we called it then, were moving to the campaign. And me being this bright-eyed 
three-year-old, 22-year-old was like, here's all the stuff I think we should be doing on the web. And the RNC was like, great, it's yours now, but we have no budget. And so I started, I learned how to code HTML, CSS, very basic stuff, video editing, things of that nature. And that got me involved in digital politics. And it was something that I stuck with then for the next eight years, mostly. So bounced around a couple of different campaigns, House campaigns, Senate campaigns, worked on Rudy Giuliani's presidential in 2007, when he was still known as America's mayor, which is really important, I think. Um, And then um, after the 2010 cycle, Facebook actually reached out to me because I had been working with them. They had hired somebody. to help politicians and governments use Facebook pages, which had launched in late 2007. And they wanted a Republican because they knew there were going to be a lot of Republicans running for president in 2012, but President Obama would be running for re-election. And so that got me into the Facebook world. Once there, um, after the 2012 cycle, um, we started getting a lot of questions um, from candidates, political parties overseas, wanting to do what President Obama had done in his campaign, because the story of how data and digital and social media was used was just being reported on extensively all around the world. And so I went to Facebook with a pitch that we should build out two things. One, build out the international team to be working with those politicians and governments. But we also wanted 2016 to be known as the Facebook election, because in 2012, Google and YouTube had really big presences at the conventions. They were the ones where a lot of the online ad dollars were going, things of that nature. And so there were a lot of elections that were happening in 2014 in India, in Indonesia, in Brazil. And so we wanted to start thinking through, okay, how can we pull data about how much people are talking about the candidates and issues. We wanted to expand our election day reminders. All of those different types of things that I can go in a little bit deeper. Um, And so they were like, great, it's yours. (laughs) Um, You're seeing a trend here. Um, And so that's what got me into, you know, initially it was trying to figure out that aspect of how the platform could be, um, how we could engage in elections that way. And then after the 2016 election is when it all shifted to mostly integrity work, the, everything from mis and disinfo, ad transparency, foreign interference, you name the topic, that's where then we really need to start putting together the teams to do that. And certainly in 2016, Facebook played a huge role in the election that maybe you didn't expect at the beginning. Um, it wasn't necessarily the Facebook election. Not in the way we intended it intended. to be. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so take us to that time in the Facebook offices. What was that challenge like? Oh, my gosh. The day after. Well, I should actually back up a little bit. Um, I started having more inklings in terms of the potential downsides and that there would be a a coming tech lash, if you will. May 9th, 2016 was it was the day of the Philippines election, which is one where Rodrigo Duterte One, and he was um, criticized for using the internet to harass people like Maria Ressa. Um, But that was also the day that Facebook was um, accused by a contractor of suppressing conservative content in its trending topics feed. Uh, A month later, Brexit happened, and everybody was like, holy smokes, like, how did that happen? We weren't expecting it. And The Economist had a cover story in September of 2016 talking about post-truth politics. 
And I remember being like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a, something we're going to have to figure out for the 2017, like French elections was top of mind for me a little bit. Um, and so, cause everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Like it wasn't, although I did have inklings, another inkling I had was the last debate President, then candidate Trump, was live streaming the third debate. They had bought the feed, which no candidate had ever done before. And he was live streaming it on his Facebook page, and he was bracketing it with his own content. He had more viewers on that live stream than ABC did on their live stream, and Facebook was promoting the ABC live stream on its homepage. Mm. So it was just, there was things where I'm like, oh, maybe this is actually, like, but you still kind of thought, no, it's probably like it's probably going to be Secretary Cl- Secretary Clinton. Um, and then when that didn't happen, the next day, I remember kind of coming into the office in a bit of a daze, and because we were, there was shell shock from the election, but then there was this realization that we're going to be blamed. Mm. We're going to be blamed. People are going to be looking to us of trying to explain this. What happened? We're going to get a ton of questions. And literally, it felt like overnight, we went from an organization that everybody was just loved to partner with us on, on all sorts of things of one where we were like, look at how the candidates, how much they used our platform. Like, I think if Secretary Clinton had won, we probably would have done that. It would have been a lot of like, case studies and stories and everything that we'd be trying to push out there to show how relevant our platform was. Now, because of the backlash, we they were um, wanting us to just be quiet about it. And that was really hard. So um, before we dive into sort of that, that backlash, I'd love to get an idea of what conversations were like right before that, when you had this first is of, Oh, expanding internationally, um, the sort of uh, intersection of, of politics and campaigning with Facebook. Can you give us an idea or perhaps the optimists pitch of what that was like before the tech clash? Yeah, I think, you know, what I call the optimistic era, and I think its peak was 2011, 2012, really, around it all, was um, social media and the internet was seen as a great democratizer. Like, no, it would make candidates more accessible, we thought, because they could use social media to talk directly to voters. Like, having the President of the United States use social media to talk directly to voters, we thought was the ideal. That was like the thing we really wanted to do because we were like, how great people can get an unfiltered view of what the president's thinking. Now, we've learned the downsides of that potentially with President Trump in doing all of that. But it was a way for you to directly reach your voters without having to go through the press. You didn't have to go through other gatekeepers. You didn't have any limits. It didn't have to be a soundbite. You could talk for as long as you wanted. You could say whatever you wanted. And you could also get immediate feedback from voters, right, in terms of what they cared about and the issues that they cared about. And then on the advertising side, it was also a great way, you know, in the U.S., just for example, right, like to run TV into New Hampshire, you have to buy Boston Media Market. And it's very wasteful. But now with micro-targeting, you can not just target New Hampshire. You can target different cities in New Hampshire. You can target voters. If there's somebody who's a parent of young kids, they might care more about education versus a retiree couple who might care more about Medicare. And so you could really start to filter those messages a lot more to talk to people about what they cared about. And that's what we were sort of pitching and seeing as like just a real positive thing because you were able to better segment voters and and really get that feedback in a in a one to one type situation. 
I'm curious how political operators first received that message, um, both in like from like a tactical standpoint when it came to micro targeting, and then also, you know, from the idea that you could craft messages specifically to certain voters, were either in the United States or um, political groups around the world, were they? receptive to that idea was there hesitation what were those conversations like so early on it was a lot of skepticism right it was like what's this internet thing why am i going to post what i had for lunch like this is stupid type of thing like let's just have the 20 year old kid run it um it's not uh, there was a lot of concern in the early days and i'm talking early aughts like oh four or mid aughts oh four oh five time frame a lot of concern, like, especially around comment sections, like, oh, my God, we're just going to let anybody put content on our site. Like, what if they think that we're responsible for it? Like, what if they think that means like people are going to think that we endorse what they're what they're saying? Um, there was concern of being made fun of or, you know, making a misstep in doing it. There was concern of like, is it just a waste of time? Because we don't really see the the um, results of it. But I think for those of us early on who adapted to it and some others as well, and I would actually put like when I was at the RNC, Ed Gillespie was the chairman. I think President Obama's campaign saw this. Howard Dean's campaign in 2004 saw this. The ability of using metrics to where you could start to test messages and get real-time feedback was pretty amazing for some people where I could be like, normally you'd have to go out with a poll you probably wouldn't find out the results for two to three weeks. Like it is just not a very fast system. So as people started to see that, that started to turn some people. Some people started to get turned once you could start raising money off of it and mm. real money off of it. And people saw that. Um, early on too, like doing stuff on the web in and of itself would be a news story. So it was a great way to get earned media. So that was a lot of the ways I got some of the comms people on board was that you could pitch those types of stories and, and things of that nature. And usually the last holdouts we had in terms of people using the platform were usually eventually would get on the minute they had to run for a reelection. So we, gen we had some senators or other candidates overseas if they were like in a six year cycle that they might be they may take a little bit longer to get on. But we eventually at one point in time, there was every member of Congress on at least Facebook and Twitter. And what made 2016 a turning point from the time when every member of Congress was using Facebook and now Facebook became the face of such villainy and controversy? So I think it's a couple of different things. One is that um, just the number of people that were using the platform had hit quite a large number by 2016. So 2012, Facebook hit 1 billion users worldwide. I'm going to... By 2016, I'm pretty sure we were up to 2 billion by then. So the number of people using it grew. Um, the use of mobile continued to explode. Um, granted, the iPhone had been around since 2009, but that was also hitting more mass market saturation. And so people had more of an ability to see more content and stuff on the go and not just using their computers, things of that nature. I also think, too, that, you know, the around the world, like authoritarian governments and others and other actors that I think had originally scoffed at using the internet saw starting with the Arab Spring, they were worried about then if they didn't um, start to embrace it, that it could be their downfall. And so they started putting a lot more money into it, et cetera. 
The other thing, too, with the number of people that it had, remember, some of the mis- and disinformation that came out of 2016 was not by people wanting to impact the election. They were trying to make money. It was teenagers in Macedonia who were just pushing whatever they could because it got the most number of clicks to their websites where they had ads and then they were making money. And that comes from having just a lot of people on the platform. And then lastly, you had candidates like President Trump who were really pushing the lines and boundaries of content and what he was saying and really putting these companies in a tough spot where their content policies hadn't necessarily been adapted for somebody to, to go right up to that line like that. So I'm curious, perhaps going into 2016 and then beyond, um, what on the platform side, on the Facebook side, it was like preparing for that when it started to become more evident that there were folks pushing whether for political purposes or monetary purposes or just pushing the boundaries of what was at least considered before perhaps civil and political speech, at least in the United States. What were, how did the conversation shift um, as those problems began to become more prevalent? Yeah, and a lot of that didn't really start to shift till 2017, till after the election. I think in the lead up to with things like President Trump's uh, post in December of 2015 around banning Muslims, that is where the company started to really grapple with, okay, there is stuff that violates our community standards, but it's also newsworthy. And so, and also who are we as a private company to take down content from the president of the United States? Right. There was an element of like, why are we being put in this position (laughs) of having to make that call? And it would also have been incredibly precedent setting. I think today after we've, you know, we've, the president was deplatformed after January 6th, but you have to remember five years earlier doing that was unheard of and a real concern that if that's the route that they started to go, we would really be putting the company in a position of being able to be accused, even if it was not our intention, of putting the thumb on the scale in an election about who could win or who couldn't win. I remember having some conversations with engineers and stuff in the fall of 2016 of like, how would we even think about dealing with like fake news? Like, are, like how would we determine that? We were just starting, and like the engineers were like, we have no idea how we'd even build for it. We weren't quite sure how we would even do it policy-wise. Um, and, and it, but then after the election, then with public pressure growing so great around it and just so much coming to light of what was there. And I should say, too, there were teams like the threat intelligence teams and stuff like that were looking for stuff, but they were looking for your traditional hackers and spammers and stuff like that, not necessarily foreign agents trying to influence the election. So as that stuff started to come to light after 2016, very quickly, we came up with the first fact-checking program that launched in December of 2016 at Facebook. We started having the conversations around political and issue ad transparency in early 2017, made the announcement that we were going to launch it in late 2017 and actually launched it in mid-2018. But there was a lot of, okay, we've got a lot of catching up to do. What are the types of products and stuff that we want to build? And then how do we prioritize them? And then how do you start writing the policy? Not only like writing the code to do it, but writing the policies and designing that stuff and everything just takes a lot of time. And so we all kind of got thrown into having to define and build and think about a lot of this stuff where there was no roadmap to lead us of how to do it. And now reflecting back on that time, what role do you think private companies should play and the government should play in terms of content moderation? 
Yeah, I think one thing that is was a real failure was the FEC very early on in the aughts giving a very hands-off approach to the internet. Um, one of the earlier decisions they had, earliest decisions they had to make was around the 2004-2005 timeframe about bloggers and what role bloggers would have. Would they have the same protections as news media or not as part of what was happening online? And another thing that FEC did not, I think, um, accurately like get ahead of was political advertising and thinking about how that should be reported, how that should, what that should look like. And that's still a place where we're behind today, but I think there should definitely be some government regulation there. On a private company side, and this is a tension that continues to today, is that question of how do you grow responsibly? Um, the ethos and culture of Silicon Valley is grow fast, right? It's get more users, keep the VCs happy. Eventually, if you're lucky enough to go public, then it's keeping your shareholders happy and you're, it's just grow, 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 grow. We'll figure out all the problems later. But if you don't have a product, you don't have a product to have to keep safe. So that should be like the first thing. And I think that, you know, in hindsight, looking back, if there's a way to think about how can you start to build some of these systems in from the get go? How do you think about some of the design of your platform where friction might be a good thing? Because before it was always about like removing friction and making it easier, which sounds really great, but that can also lead to um, the ease of spread of some of these things, some of these things too. So it's definitely a balance and there's a role for, for, for both. And one of the things I would hope as well is that as we start thinking about the next 20 years, how can we learn lessons from that to apply going forward? So one of the few areas of bipartisan discussion that we see on the Hill is coming after you know big tech and the big five um you know and like i mean from ted cruz to elizabeth warren they both sort of have somewhat of the position that regardless of how you slice it you know the facebook's of the world you know the google's of the world are just too big but of course part of what goes into what makes these platforms and these products successful is sort of a critical mass of people do you think that it's possible to grow responsibly as you put it or is does it get to a point where the platform or the people on it is just too unwieldy for a single company to or should handle? So I think that it's a good question of what how big is too big and gets too big to handle. But there's a flip side to that that concerns me, which is this, this threat of the fragmentation of the internet. Mm. Like the internet is one of the few places without borders. You can very easily, I've got friends all over the world that I can very easily talk to. I can get information from all over the world, um, which is has a lot of upsides. And if you were if we were to have it where every country had its own internet, that would make things incredibly hard and would silo us more inside our own borders rather than making us better global citizens, which has some real downsides that I think we have to think about. Then there's that question of competition, right? Of and this is where it's really interesting. This will be interesting to see. 20 years from now, looking back at this period of time, because while Facebook remains, we'll just use Facebook, for instance, remains very large, it is having a real threat from TikTok. Mm. Um, and TikTok has exploded over the last couple of years. And even in our discussion sessions, most none of the students use Facebook. Most of them were like, we use Instagram, we use TikTok. 
Maybe they're on Facebook because their parents are on or they like got on when they were younger, but it's not the primary platform that they are using. And so looking at that, like I think there are many elements still of competition that these companies have and that the traditional views of antitrust are not going to work, but we haven't quite figured out how to redefine what it means to have like too much of something as a company and then what is the appropriate way to handle that because frankly I think break I always tell people break Facebook up don't break Facebook up I don't think it's going to make much of a difference because just like when AT&T got broken up people actually made more money Mm. when it got broken up during that so there's pros and cons to all of it I think it's just making sure that we're taking the right steps to actually have the impact and outcomes that people think that it will have. Yeah, uh, I think that's interesting. And one of the interesting parts about your background is not only your tech background, but also you know, your reflections on on how it's impacting our democracy. Of course, you're at International Republican Institute um, as well. And I'm just, you know, you touched on sort of President Trump's deplatforming. And I, the reason that I thought of this is you mentioned you break Facebook up, don't break Facebook up. There's still going to be, you know, this this interest. I'm just curious when it comes to like deplatforming in particular, and we've seen like alternate, you know, social media sites pop up as well. How much of all this is inevitable? Um, you know, this, this polarization, this fragmentation of our democratic processes. Um, and it's just, you know, superimposed on this additional debate we're having about social media and how much of it is interlinked. So if I make sure I understand the, the question correctly, I think that Listen, did social media cause polarization? No. Did it contribute to it? Absolutely. I think if you could, if you shut off Facebook today, it's not going to necessarily change where we as a society are. That there's so many different aspects to that, right? Everything from the rise of right, um, right talk radio in the '80s to like um, people self-selecting where they live. And living in more polarized to gerrymandering, there's there's so many different things that can go that can go into it. But that being said, I think that there's an incentive structure that social media and the internet introduced that we need to think about, which is as you're chasing for more clicks, as you're chasing for more dollars, people, the people that are creating that content are going to respond to that, and they're going to want to keep getting clicks and keep getting dollars. And so they're going to keep doing more of the stuff that gets them more of those things. And that incentive structure, I think, slowly over time is what has also pushed folks on the left and the right further to the edges because that's the kind of content that people are clicking on more. And it leads to this interesting tension that um, that I think the platforms face and others face, which is how much do you chase where the users are going and what the users are actually doing, which is going to be a little different than what the users sometimes tell you what they want. Mm versus also how much should you be putting other stuff in front of their in in their feeds should you be putting you know if they if it looks like they mostly follow democratic content should you be throwing stuff from fox news in there i'm guessing most people would get pretty upset if they started to see content that they didn't ask to see in their feed and also who appointed the people at facebook the powers that be to tell you what you should or should not see in your feed or to say that you need more of this kind of information in your diet to be a more well-rounded human being. Um, that I think is, is also somewhat at the heart of this content moderation d- 
debate in this in this debate around like the silos and the filter bubbles or whatever people want to call it that they go into is um, is sort of that balance between user choice versus um, also I guess discovery. And as Sam mentioned, you're now at the International Republican Institute, and also you have Anchor um, Anchor Change. So, how did that happen? Why did you leave Facebook? Yeah, so I had already been kind of keeping post twenty twenty in the back of my head as a potential time to leave the company. It was going to be ten year my ten year anniversary of being there, which was the longest that I'd ever been in any one place. After the twenty twenty election, seemed like the most if. There's never an ideal time, but like after a major election, seemed kind of smart. Um, but then at the end of 2019, um, I also got taken off of the elections team, and Facebook wanted to go a different direction of how they were managing that work. And so I went, you know, at the beginning of 2020, I went from traveling 250 days a year, working on elections, um, to we're all at home in COVID lockdown. I'm not doing the job that I want to going into the election. And um, I think if COVID had not hit, I probably would have left in 2020. But with the job market and everything being where it was, I instead used that year to really kind of plot out what I wanted next in my career. When I've always kind of taken thought about next steps in my career, it's always sort of been, what new experiences do I want to get? What are things that I can add to my toolbox, if you will, of skill sets and and things of that nature. And I also realized too, that I didn't think that I wanted to go full time into any one organization. I was burnt out. I mean, Facebook had been always stressful, but the parts very stressful the last five or six years that I had been there. And so decided to go out on my own. So I created Anchor Change to kind of be the umbrella, um, LLC for the work that I was doing. It also gave me a way to brand. I have a newsletter at anchorchange.substack.com. Gave me a way to kind of be able to do public work and thought leadership work on my own and not have it tied to any one organization. I wanted it to be building up my own brand, in all honesty. And then I started um, talking to a lot of these organizations I had partnered with when I was at Facebook. And so in addition to the International Republican Institute, I'm working with the Bipartisan Policy Center working with an organization called the National Conference on Citizenship. I helped some of my former colleagues create a nonprofit called the Integrity Institute. So, and then I'm doing some work with some um, other universities and stuff like that too, all at the intersection of tech and democracy. But what it's allowed me to do is still do all the different aspects that I loved at Facebook. I can be at work in the US, I can work internationally. I've got the policy side of it. I've got the tech side of it. So it's marrying all of my different loves <laughs> that I like to do. And what I'm trying to do is bringing those worlds together a lot more. And so by having my own thing, it gives me more flexibility to do that as well. I'd love to touch on just two rather contentious topics before we move into our Bring it on. Finally, <laughs> um, so just, you know, we talked about deplatforming and also content moderation who gets to decide what's in our, you know, e e diet of information? Um, just like, just point blank, if uh, former President Trump decides to r- run in 2024 for the presidency, should he be allowed back onto major platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc.? Yes, with restrictions. 
Um, in fact, I just released a, I'm doing something at Stanford here next week um, with a group of 14 individuals to discuss this exact question. And I had to write a five-page position paper on it. And so folks can find <laughs> that. It's in my Twitter feed if they want a little bit more about my reasoning on this, which I'm happy to get into. But um, what what I think that either decision of keep him off or leave or let him back on has real consequences, severe consequences. And we should acknowledge that both decisions will have that. And I don't think anybody has the perfect crystal ball to really understand what might happen. The threat of violence is real, right? The threat of misinfo and the deterioration of trust in our electoral systems is real and something that he does perpetuate. However, I am very worried about the signal it sends the rest of the world and other places if the United States, the supposed beacon of democracy, First Amendment speech, deplatforms and and a public company or private company does not allow him to have that platform to talk and that other authoritarian governments around the world can say, if America can do this, we can do it. Now it's apples and oranges, like for us who are are like for smart people, but that doesn't stop authoritarians from still using it as as an argument. Um, And I worry about that sort of slippery slope that we could go down. Plus, the law is not very clear in this area around what should or should not be done. Um, And I also think, too, that like the, the criteria around it always hinges around imminent violence. Part of the reason he finally got deplatformed on the 6th was violence was happening. And so imminent needs to be it's happening or is like literally right about to happen. And that is a really hard and very high bar, I think, to to have. And I don't know if today, if you could say that, like, the minute you get him back on, that violence is imminent and something bad will happen. So it's going to be a really interesting debate. I think it's one that um, is going to be quite contentious as we go come out of the midterms and go, Facebook has to make the decision by January 7th. So it'll be very much be a topic of conversation around the holiday dinner tables. Mm. And, you know, just another one that sort of many, especially in the conservative um, end of the political spectrum, when they look at, you know, how, you know, Trump and others are deplatformed or censored online, um, off, and, and also on the left as well, there's there's an accusation of bias in tech, particularly, I think, um, the, the assertion that there is some sort of left-wing bias in tech. Um, from your perspective, is that true either in policy, sub- substance, or personnel? So I think that when looking at this debate, the way that the platforms have written their policies and where they've drawn the line absolutely is one that can affect the right more than the left. Um, Because the right does tend to have more, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's topics of abortion, um, many other topics as well. they do tend to be um, where that line gets drawn. Their content most likely will like oftentimes fall on the other side of that line to get taken down more. I think that's a legitimate question and debate to have about where those lines should be drawn and what should be allowed or should not be allowed. And that is a conscious decision by the by the platforms, but it isn't a political one. It's not one that's intended to be like, oh, we're going to try to make it harder for conservatives to um, to run for re-election or anything like that. It is much more of a broader societal one of the types of values that the companies want and the platforms want to have out there. 
I know a lot of people on the right because I've talked to them a lot. I mean, it's at times I'm like, I think you all think that we have people in a room that are just purposely trying to find your content and mess with it, right? That's not the case. That is not the case that is happening. And in fact, I saw people, I spent, I had a lot, a lot of people over my time at Facebook who would seek me out and want to talk to somebody who is on the right, who thought differently from them to make sure that they weren't being biased in creating the policies, would want our help to bring in folks from the right, whether it was elected officials, staffers, think tanks, et cetera, to try to think through and how do we um, try to map and solve some of these problems. So, I mean, these problems do exist, but it's not an overt type of bias, meaning to try to help the Democrats more than the Republicans. And before we jump into our lightning round, Looking ahead in 2024, there are obviously a lot of elections going on, certainly in America, but also around the world. So what are you watching and how are you feeling? So this has been my this has been my thing for two years and it's going to be for another two years. Yeah. So the first time for the first time ever in the ever, ever, ever in the history that I could go as far back on, not only will we have a U.S. presidential election in 2024, but India, Indonesia, Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and the European Parliament, amongst a bunch of others, will all be going to the polls. And that's never happened, like I said before. And so that is a lot of fronts for not just the tech companies to have to be protecting, but governments to be paying attention to, civil society, media, academia, everyone. It's going to open the door, I think, for bad actors because it's going to be very hard to keep your eye on all those things. And thus, that means things that fall by the wayside could be potential vectors and areas where bad actors could try to exploit those. And in, even just in a non-internet way, this is a huge geopolitical moment. We could have the leaders of some really major countries change, which could bring different policies when it comes to the internet. It could bring different policies that comes to content moderation. What does that mean for speech? So many just different implications that can come from it. So. I am worried. I am anxious. Um, the next two years are going to be crazy. And, but that also makes me excited <laughs> um, to see what happens. But the other thing, too, is that um, I just came from last week. There was a trust and, two trust and safety conferences out in California. Trust and safety is the space or integrity that is the, the teams that work on a lot of these problems. They write the policies. They're writing the code. They're doing all of that. These are some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And we had, everybody was there at these conferences sharing notes from across platforms, from regulators, from academia and others to try to figure out the solutions to these problems. And so there are people working on it. They are incredibly thoughtful. And so I think we will figure it out, but it's still going to be a little messy and chaotic while we do so. Mm. Well, hopefully on the fly, we can relieve a little bit of anxiety, perhaps in this episode, maybe <laughs> not in the world. Um, as we have alluded to, uh, we have a tradition here at Fly on the Wall, where we end all of our interviews with three quick lightning round questions. All right. Um, ask quick questions, hopefully get quick answers. Okay. So our first one is our, um, our crafty research team um, happened to come across some information that you are a pretty devout Wisconsin sports fan. I am. Um, so I was just wondering, um, are you still on the Aaron Rodgers train 
how many years think he has left with the Packers? I am still on the Aaron Rodgers train. Um, I would put it probably two or three years that he might have left with the Packers. Um, but they're looking pretty good so far. So fingers crossed. And secondly, what book are you reading right now? I just started Confidence Man by Maggie Haberman, but I actually have a huge stack of books, Memoirs, um, Chaos Machine. Um, there's a new Janet Yellen book that is out. I probably have like eight books or so that are sitting out. <laughs> they keep piling up here in the fall. All right. And lastly, um, you've been invited to a potluck. What dish are you bringing? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I suppose I can't ask her questions like, is it a tailgate potluck? Is it like a chili off? But I guess what I would say is my buffalo chicken dip. Okay. Um, and does that does that vary based on what is what is the potluck that you're hoping to bring that to? Is that a tailgate potluck? That would that? be a tailgate potluck. Um, then, like, I suppose, too, like, if, if I'm doing one here in D.C., I also bring Spotted Cow, which is a beer that you can only get in Wisconsin. So when I go home for the holidays and summers, I usually bring back cases of it for the other fellow Wisconsinites here in D.C. <laughs> and then I usually also boil brats. So I like, I like to do a full tailgate Wisconsin spread, if you will. And then I usually also bring venison. So I'm also a hunter. And so I usually have, I think it's still moose meat venison that I have. So we usually bring summer sausage and stuff because it's fun to say, I shot that moose that you're eating the sausage <laughs> from. Yeah. Well, before we get our listeners too hungry, um, <laughs> Kara, thank you so much for joining us here on the fly and also for being a fall 2022 geopolitics fellow. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. That's great. And if you enjoyed this conversation and you're part of the Georgetown community, make sure to swing by Katie Harbath's discussion group weekly. Yes, it is Tuesdays at four o'clock, um, though this upcoming week is going to be at three o'clock instead because of Mayor Pete's or Secretary Pete Buttigieg's event. That's right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Fly on the Wall. You can find us on social media by searching at Fly on the Wall Pod. Inquiries may be sent to our email address, flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe to Fly on the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. The Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, Managing Director of the Pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon.